morning. We will um, conclude, Lord willing, our study in the book of 1 John and uh, focus this morning on the last four verses of the book. So if you want to stay there, um, that would be great. We are told in God's word in 2 Timothy chapter number 2 and verse 15 that we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed because he rightly divides the word of truth. And we are called and commanded to um, study God's word. We're told that the word of God is inspired. It is literally the, the breath of God as he breathes out. And that the purpose of the inspiration of Scripture and the fact that we have it is that we might be completely furnished, um, thoroughly furnished, as some versions say, that we might accomplish every good work. And uh, God has given us His Word so that we might know Him uh, personally and intimately. Uh, We might know Him intellectually and also that we might live out what He has for us. We often look at the Word of God and we see a book that's full of rules and regulations and people look at it and they see it as being this very restrictive book that's simply there, was written to keep us from having fun, right? But what we don't realize and often recognize is that the Word of God was written for our good. It was written that we might know the right way and the way that is good and beneficial and profitable, And so John is going to close out his book. We've studied the first five chapters. We know that the book is written to give evidence to prove those who are truly saved so that they will live confidently in that reality. Again, just a few verses before in verse 13, John says, these things have I written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life and that you might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We also see back in chapter number one, he writes and says, these things have I written unto you that your joy might be full. In chapter two, he says, these things have I written unto you that you might not sin. And so there's there's so many different uh, reasons and purposes that John writes this book, but I think primarily his his driving is that we might know who we are in Christ and that as, as a result of knowing who we are in Christ, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what circumstances or problems we face in life, we will have a joy um, that exceeds understanding, that passes all understanding. A, a joy that is primarily internal, manifests itself on the outside, but, but not always, you don't always look for this joy on the outside as much as you look for this peacefulness and this restfulness that a that a, a true believer has. So John, at the end of his book, he is going to um, revisit the entire book. In the last four verses, he's going to revisit the entire book and give us some things that we can um, benefit from. And, and I'm really just this morning going to answer three questions that we should ask at the end of every Bible study. Um, this is, these are three things that as we study God's Word, and whether we're sitting under a teacher, whether we're reading uh, a, a Bible study book, or we're just simply reading the Bible, these are three things that we can ask ourselves so that we might grow in truth and um, begin to live out that truth. Keep your fingers there in 1 John chapter number 5. We'll come right back there and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 4. In verse 11, the Bible says, And he gave some, and he gave the apostles, some apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the, of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so we see there in Ephesians kind of the purpose of the church, the purpose of, of studying God's word, the purpose of teachers in the church that, that we might grow together, that we might grow in understanding who Christ is. We might grow in oneness in Christ, in unity in Christ, that Christ might be exalted and the church might accomplish the work that God has left it here to do. Now, three questions that we're going to answer this morning from our text are, are simply this. Number one is, what have we learned from the book of John, of 1 John? What are the lessons that have been taught to us? What are some of the things that are, are just laid out as, as factual evidences to us? Um, they're not questionable, they're, and throughout the book, they're not laid out in such a way that we would be confused as to whether or not they're true or not. They're laid out in such a way as that here, are, here is some factual information, This is simply intellectual knowledge. It doesn't matter if you accept it or reject it. It is the truth. Okay? The verbs that are used throughout these four verses are in the indicative mood, which means that they are facts. It's just simply information that this is stuff that anyone reading this should be able to walk away and say, this is what I got from this. Okay? And there's, there's, there's to be no question in it. So we have information and, 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 again, just intellectual knowledge. Things that are settled and things that are certain. And remember this, every time you do a Bible study, you should walk away with things that are absolutely certain. Does that make sense? There should be something that you receive from that Bible study that you're able to walk away and you're able to say that that is settled in my heart. That issue is settled for me, okay? Oftentimes, we go to the Bible with this, with this mindset and we, that we don't settle anything. Nothing gets settled from our study. We, we come at it with a bunch of questions, and we leave it with a bunch of questions. What John describes to us here is that when you come to the Word of God, you should walk away with some things that are absolutely 100% settled in your mind. They're settled in your heart, these are absolute truths, non-negotiables. Okay, and we're going to look at them here in a few minutes. The second thing that we'll see as John closes out his book is the things that are possible. Things that can happen as a result of applying the knowledge that we've received. In other words, the knowledge that you get, the information that you receive from this from the word of God, does not impact your life unless you make application to it, okay? You have to put it into practice in order for it to impact you. You can have all of the knowledge in the world, but the scripture tells us that knowledge simply leads to pride, right? Knowledge puffeth up, but it is the application of that knowledge. It is putting that knowledge into our daily lives, into our walk, that ultimately leads to wisdom, right? Wisdom is the application of knowledge, and pride is the result of being full of knowledge without that application. The most humbling thing that we can experience in the Christian life is we take the things that God says in his word that seem confusing, and they they even sometimes seem like they won't work in the culture that we live in, and we put them into practice. And we simply trust God to give us the results that he sees fit to give us. So there are some possibilities. When you're studying God's word, you walk away with some information that is factual, and you walk away with some information that is possible. You walk away with some some things that are possible if you apply the information that you have been given. Okay? A lot of people know, they know the gospel, right? The fact that Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people, the fact that he paid fully for their sins, not 99%, but 100%. They know know this information from an intellectual perspective, but they have never seen it applied into their daily life. They've never never, um, believed it personally, embraced it personally, that Jesus Christ is enough. Jesus Christ is sufficient 
So you see how that the information is there, but the application is not there, and where the application is, is, is not there, there is no benefit to life. It's like somebody tells you that you have a million dollars in the bank, and you say, well, that's great information. I'm glad to know that. But it really doesn't impact or affect your life until you go to the bank and make a withdrawal on it, right? You, you do something with it then, and only then is it become effectual for you. It becomes, it becomes impacting in your daily life. John deals with that here in these last four verses. The last thing that he deals with at the very end of the, of the chapter is instruction. Another way of saying this is it's a command. He closes this chapter out with a command, closes the book out with a command, and the purpose of the command is to help us apply the information that we've received. In other words, what John says at the very end of this chapter is, here's the one thing that's going to keep you from making application to the information that I've, that I've, that I've taught you. The one thing that's going to keep you from applying what you have learned is this last phrase, and it's written in such a way as to be a command, something that God demands of us, something that is non, a non-negotiable if we want to experience the benefits okay, of what we've already learned, the application of the information. So let's look at these in, in context with our scriptures here, okay? And the first point, I have three, uh, three thoughts this morning. Um, the first one is just concrete things, things that we know from this study. And again, there's no questions, no if, and, or buts about it. This is information for you. And John gives us several things that we can know informationally um, in this text. You'll, see, you'll notice the word know is used, it's, it's used some 40 times in the book of 1 John, but it's used four times in the, in the last four verses, and three times it's the Greek word ido, and the word just simply means to perceive, to see, to inspect, to examine, to experience, to inventory. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very deep intellectual knowledge. It's not just somebody told me this and so I believe it, but, it, but it, it, is, it is literally the unpacking of something, the unfolding of something. So when John talks about knowing these things, the informational piece of it, he's not just talking about a, a very casual knowing, but, he's, but he is talking about a very deep study knowledge of these truths. Okay, And what we can know from that, the information that we can gain from that, is while there is a casual knowledge of the truth, there's also a deep, intimate knowledge of the truth that both of those without application mean nothing. Okay, You go back to Matthew chapter number 13 where the Bible talks about the, the, uh, the concept of um, that there have been wise men and there have been noble men who have sought to understand the truth but have not understand the, understood the truth. But he says, but your eyes are blessed and your ears are blessed because you see and understand the truth. So there are those who study great into great depths. And, and, and remember this, that is good, not bad. But without the application, it doesn't do anything for us. It's just simply factual information. So this word no three times in this text is re referring to just a deep intellectual unpacking of the information. And here's what John concludes, okay? Let's just look at it together. Here's what he concludes. Verse number 18, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. That is a factual statement. There's no question within that statement. He's not asking for our approval of that statement. He's not asking for us to apply that statement. What John is saying is this, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not live a life of habitual sin. They do not live a life. It doesn't matter how hard we argue with that truth. The Bible says clearly, and it's been taught all throughout the book of 1 John, we know that those who have been born of God do not live a life of habitual sin. And, and, and folks, listen to me. We live in a generation of people that argue this truth as far as they possibly can. 
Why? Because cousin, cousin Joey or, or Aunt Susie is living in a habitual sinful life, but we know that they're Christians. Listen, if they are Christians, if they are Christians, then praise the Lord, but don't give them the benefit of, a, of the doubt in something that is not true about them. At the very least, we should be questioning their salvation and challenging them to walk with Christ. Because truly what the Bible says is those who have been born of God will not live in habitual sin. It's a fact. It's just information. John is just saying, here's what's been unpacked for you. You go back to chapter number three, the Bible says the same idea is no one who has been born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now, now we know that we all sin as Christians, we sin, but there's something totally different from somebody who is struggling in sin and somebody who is habitually living in sin. It's completely different. Somebody who lives habitually in sin, it's evidence, it's a sign that they need to seek Christ in repentance and faith. It's something seriously wrong there. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10 and verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after we have received the knowledge of the truth, again, this is that intellectual piece of it. After we have unpacked the truth, if we decide to continue to live in sin, he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. In other words, if you can picture it this way, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. If the gospel is repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and, and you come face to face with that reality and you say, I'm going to find another way because I refuse to repent of my sins, Jesus says, there is no other way. There is no other sacrifice for your sins. There is no other way to be saved. There is one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father lest they come through me. Right? There is, there is no one who is born of God that continues to live in sin habitually, freely, deliberately. If you're saved this morning, you know what this means. Because every time you sin, it's like a war inside of you. There's something that's not right. And you know that. Romans 6 and verse 2 says, How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? So the first statement of fact is simply this. No one who has been born of God keeps living habitually in sin. And he doesn't stop there. Let me give you a few uh, secondary thoughts to this point. Why does he not keep living habitually in sin? The Bible says here, because he who is born of God protects him. And there are two, um, there are two meanings to this phrase, and I'm going to give both of them to you because I think that there's credit or evidence to the interpretation of both of them being right. Number one is that the Lord Jesus Christ, he who has been born of God, protects him, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ protecting us from a life of sin, keeping us from a life of sin. I think of what the Bible says in John chapter 17, in verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, those which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of perdition, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then verse 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And the emphasis of these two verses in John 17 is simply this, that God the Father and God the Son are actively involved in, in keeping us from sin. They're actively involved in protecting us from living a lifestyle of sin. It doesn't mean that God is going to keep us always from the temptations. Now, we know that the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation. But sometimes that temptation is, is there for our good as well. In other words, it's an opportunity for us to choose Christ over temptation. If we don't think that temptation has a purpose, we have to really work out why there was a temptation in the center of the garden, right? Right? 
It's an opportunity. Temptation is an opportunity for us to grow. It's an opportunity for us to choose Christ over, over otherworldly, fleshly gratifications. But the Lord is there to protect us. He's there to keep us as his children. He's there to guard us from sin, from a lifestyle, uh, an habitual lifestyle of sinfulness. God the Father, God the Son are there to guard us from that. Jude verse 24 and 25, the Bible says, "Now now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And then 1 Thessalonians 5 says, now may the God of peace sanctify himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will also accomplish it or perform it. Philippians 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath began a good work in you will complete it. Our confidence in not living an habitual life of sin is not that we have the power within ourselves to overcome sin. It's that we have God in us to overcome sin. It is the power of God in us that leads us to that victory. But the the opposite is true. If a person does not have the power of God within them to say no to sin, according to what John says, is they're not born again. The issue for them is not that we pray that they overcome sin, the issue for them is that we pray that they be saved. Right? That's what he deals with in the previous few verses. We don't pray that lost people overcome sin. They can't. We pray that lost people get saved. That the Spirit of God comes to live within their life. Then we pray that that the Lord would help them to overcome sin. We see back in our text... uh, in, in 1 John chapter number 3, in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared and able to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, and whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Watch this, because God's seed abides in him. God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. He cannot. It is impossible for somebody who the Spirit of God lives inside of for them to continue to live a habitual lifestyle of sin. This is fact. This is what he's saying. Facts. Chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Greater is he that is in you, than he that is in the world. So the Trinity, in, in the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, work in harmony to keep God's children from habitual sinning. We also see in this phrase that we keep ourselves from habitual sinning. Other versions say this, and, and, I, and I believe that there is truth to it because the verbs that are used here are used in the middle voice And the middle voice implies something that you do in an action on yourself. It's something that you do for yourself or for your own benefit. So the idea would be that we we protect ourselves from sinning. And I think of a few few terms. uh, Our conscience is there to keep us from sinning. Romans 2 and verse 15, the Bible talks about our conscience either affirming or hindering us from doing something. Our conscience is there to keep us from sinning. And then the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1, 7, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. 
And God gives us the power of self-control. So it's not only the Trinity is working in harmony to keep us from living a life of habitual sin, but, but we also work to keep from living a life of habitual sin. It's sometimes it's easy to, to kind of say, well, Lord, you do it. The Lord says, you fight sin with all your might. You fight sin. You flee youthful lust. You flee from adultery. You do these things. And, and yes, I will be the source of your strength, but you do something. And God is not expecting us to do it without his strength behind it. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And the grace of God towards me was not in vain because I worked more than anybody else. But it was the grace of God that was working through me. We do, we work, we labor, we fight, we run out against Goliath with a sling in our hands and we throw a little stone and God leads that stone right to where he wants it to land. And at the end of the day, it had nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. Amen? Amen. We're so afraid of getting out there and battling. But listen, God has given us a heart to war against our sins. We need to be active in this war. So sin is fought against, number one. Number two, why do we not sin? The Bible says this, and the evil one, at the end of verse number 18, the evil one does not touch him. The word touch here is very, very important. It comes from the Greek word hoptomai, and it literally means to fasten to. It's like glue. Think about this. The Bible is saying this, that sin has nothing to attach itself to anymore. When we get saved, sin, before we're saved, we're like glue to sin. We're like the other side of Velcro to sin, right? I mean, it just sticks. When we get saved, the Bible says that the law is ripped away and that sin has nothing to stick to anymore. Romans 7 talks about the fact that the law, man, the, the law causes us to become bold in sin, the law doesn't keep us from sinning. It really, it really maximizes sin. And what the Lord says is, is when you get saved, I'm going to take that law away, and sin is just going to fall off. Sin has nothing to stick to anymore. This is why Romans 5, 6, and 7, you see it, and 8, you see it over and over again, that sin has no more, has no more power, has no more dominion over us. It cannot adhere to us. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and 66 says, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the, is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did he give us the victory? He hung the law on the tree. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, God hath made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The law has been canceled towards those who are Christ. How? This is how he did it. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Sin has no power over us is a fact. It is a fact. It is absolutely truth. Say, well, Pastor John, you don't know me. No. <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Sin has no power over us. We are now set free in Christ. Truth number two. First truth, no one who is born of God lives a habitual life of sin. Truth number two is found in verse number 19. We know that we are from God. This is another truth. This is another absolute. It is not a question. It is not something that needs our affirmation. This is a truth. We know that we are from God. And we see in this text two things, two domains, the domain of God and the domain of Satan. 
We know that we are from, the idea of it is, is that we have come from God's domain, God's realm of authority. We live a life in submission to his will and to his work. We seek to accomplish and and move on, uh, carry forward his kingdom work. We have his purposes now. We now live for his glory. All of these things are true about a Christian. We live in God's domain. Romans 5 and verse 22, but now you have been set free from sin and have become a slave of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. This means as Christians, this factual information is number one, we have a divine origin. We come from God. John 3, the entire chapter. John 8, we are born of God. We come from God. We have a divine origin. We have a divine purpose. We have a divine, we have divine wisdom. We have divine desires. We have a divine life. We are, we are as Christians now living the life of Christ. I heard a preacher say recently, we are not welcoming Christ into our world. Christ is welcoming us into his world. We don't invite Christ into our life. Christ welcomes us into his life. We don't live and ask Jesus Christ to accomplish our purposes. Jesus Christ lives and invites us into his purposes. You see, life doesn't become about us more so when we get saved. It becomes about Jesus when we get saved. He is everything to us. And we know that we are born of him, that we are from him. This is a knowledge that we have. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, or 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, his divine power hath granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence by which he hath granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of of sinful desires. We know that we are from God. The second thing that we, the third thing that we know is this, the world, mark this down, make a note of this. The whole world, again, and this is not my opinion, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. He's making a distinction. Here are believers. Here is the economy of God. Here is a heavenly economy, and here is the world's economy. And there is no middle economy. We have tried to redeem not mankind with the gospel, but we've tried to redeem the philosophies of the world. God has never called us to redeem the philosophies of the world. They lie under the power of the evil one. The best thing that we can do is avoid them. Listen to me, folks. We've got to get this down. We have got to mark it that everything that this world seeks to accomplish is under the power of the evil one. If you don't mark this down, you will never get the command at the end of this chapter. You will never understand why the Lord says, flee, avoid idols, unless you get this down. And that is, the whole world lies under the power, under the sway, or under the influence, or has the the purpose and the vision, and all the things that I just talked about, about Christians were the opposite. The world has Satan's vision and Satan's wisdom and Satan's life and Satan's goals and Satan's mission in mind. You say, Pastor John, I really don't want to look at the world in that way. I really don't want to, and I understand that. It seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? 
the question this morning is not, is this information harsh, but is this information true? Are we reading what God says about the world? Or are we going to reject what God says about the world and embrace what we want to think about the world? Listen to me. This is why we have become so engulfed with the world system, even as Christians, because we do not see it as being under the power of the evil one. Here's what he says. We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that to be a fact. We know that the whole world lies in wickedness. And we must embrace that. He doesn't use the world whole by accident. It means entire, complete, every single bit of it with the distinction that he makes before, and that is those who have been born of God. We go back to chapter number two of the same book. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen to what he says, James says in chapter 4, Ye adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or do you not know that making friends with the world makes you an enemy of God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We know this. This is factual information. Number four, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come. You just underline that phrase there. What he's saying is, is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In other words, they're looking for the Messiah to come, and he says, the Messiah has already come. Or the Messiah is already here would be another way of saying that because of its present tense nature. The Messiah is already here. Jesus Christ is God the Son. This means that he is capable, he is authoritative, he is powerful, he is equal with God, he is sufficient, and he is worthy. John 5, 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whomever he wills. And you kind of see a flow here. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him. It is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and everlasting Father. Know this, that the word true that's used in this verse over and over again does not refer to the fact that he speaks truth, but it refers to the fact that he is the true God. Jesus Christ is the true God. That's what he's saying here. And that we embrace him and we partake of what he promises in his word we benefit from it with salvation. Number two, what if things are possible? Here's what he says here. It's interesting because this word know actually comes from the Greek word gnosko. It's a little bit different because it means this. This word in the New Testament is used to describe marriage. It's a very, very intimate term. So the first term is, is here's all these facts and you can know all of these facts, all of this information, you can unpack all of this information, and that once you have all this information unpacked, now it is gnosko, it is now possible for you to enter into an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, all of this information means very little if it's not connected to a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we lay out all the information, and then we say this. At the end of the day, what is possible if I apply all the information that I've learned? What is possible if I embrace the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What is possible if I embrace the fact that no one who lives in habitual sin is born of God? 
What is possible if I embrace these truths, not just as intellectual knowledge, but if I enter into a relationship with the one who gave me these truths? You see, at the end of the day, the goal is not that we have all this information about God, but that we have a relationship with God. It's not that we know everything that there is to know. Matter of fact, there are some really, really good Christians that walk, that walk amongst us that don't know a lot of information, but they have a personal relationship and they have a personal walk with Jesus Christ. And as you gain and grow in the knowledge of the Lord, and then you say, man, what? walk away, study God's word, but walk away and say, what are the possibilities here? What can happen if I take what I've learned and put it into practice? what he says, that we may know him, that we may have a relationship with him, that we may walk with him, that we may understand him, that we may appreciate him, that we may embrace him, that we may enjoy him. That's the, that he, that's the possible things that flow from the book of 1 John. These are the possibilities that come out of it. Again, sometimes we look at the word of God as just full of restrictions and restraints, but there's so much possibilities that God can bring forth from his word as we apply what we know to be true. John 17 and verse three, the Bible says, and this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the only verb in this portion of Scripture that is written in such a way that it is a subjective mood. It is, here's what could happen. Here's all the information, factual information, but here's what could happen. Man, that's what we live for, isn't it? It's not just filling our minds with truth. It's, here's what could happen. This is what could happen if we embrace the the information that we have received. And, the, and, and honestly, folks, the, um, we can't even begin to understand or grasp the possibilities of embracing Jesus. What he produces in us, what he produces through us, what he causes us to be, who he causes us to be. There's so many possibilities as we embrace Jesus. We have to realize that. We have to embrace that. Some things are factual and some things are possible by applying that which is factual. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, because you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What are the possibilities of embracing Jesus? Jesus tells us in John chapter number 10, the thief cometh not but forth to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I am come that you might have life and that you might have life abundantly. The Bible tells us if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have everlasting or eternal life. We have his life. These are the possibilities. These are the things that we can have, not just by having the information, but by having the the application. By putting into practice what we know to be true. And we we need to remember this too, that this information is a gift. It even says that he's been given, he's given us this understanding. It's not something that we come up with our own. He gives us as a gift understanding and, and, and helps us and causes us to embrace it. So these are the conceivable things, the things that could happen. And then the last thing that he gives us this morning is a command. It's an imperative in the Greek, and it just simply is, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, what what John says is this. The goal, the goal is, is that we embrace Christ. The goal is that we embrace Christ only. Does that make sense? Um. It's, it's not that we embrace Christ and something. It's that we embrace Christ alone, by himself. That we embrace him as sufficient. We embrace him as the substitute. We embrace Jesus Christ as the one who sufficiently 
satisfied God's wrath towards our sins. That we were sinners. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us sinned. We, have, we broke God's law and we, and we earned, we deserve God's judgment and God's wrath, right? This is what the Bible teaches. And, and we are under, according to John 3, we, we are currently, in, when you're unsaved, you're under the wrath of God even in that moment. But what happened was 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And the Bible says that he transferred all of the guilt, all of my guilt, he transferred from me and he placed it onto Jesus Christ. And he took all of Jesus Christ's righteousness and he transferred it from Jesus Christ to me, right? Those are great facts, aren't they? They're great facts. That is wonderful, beautiful information but it doesn't impact anybody that's not applied to. It must be embraced in faith. It must be taken by faith. We, we know, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So Jesus Christ hung on a tree 2,000 years ago, and he bore on his, in his body my sins, every last one of them, right? And then he went, the Bible says he went into the grave for three days, and then he arose and he overcame anything and everything that would be opposed to those who believe and embrace him. Nothing is left that can have any power over us. We are completely free in Christ, right? And he says, if we will embrace him solely and we will embrace him wholly, if we will see him like he's a treasure that, that surpasses all other treasures in the world, if we will see him in that way and embrace him, we will have him and we will be in him. And the Bible says he will be in us. That is the truth of God's word. That is the promise of the gospel, right? Yes. Now listen to me, listen to me. The one thing that is against you is idolatry. The one thing that will keep you from embracing Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is any idol. This is why he closes this chapter out with such a simple phrase and such a strong imperative. He says, keep yourselves from idols. And the implication is this, anything that could become an idol in your life, stay away from it. We play with idols, don't we? We think that we're above these things, that we have some kind of ability that's not, it's not going to impact us. That's not what John says here, is it? Oh, you've been born of God, so you're okay hanging out around idol, idolatrous things. John doesn't assume in this text of Scripture ever that someone's not a false convert. He never assumes it. He says to every one of them, get yourself away from idols. There are two things in the New Testament that the scriptures make very clear, and you can go to Acts chapter number 15, where they're wrestling over circumcision as being a part of the gospel. And here's what they conclude. It's this, two things that we're going to command of the new believers. One is that they keep themselves from idols, and two is that they keep themselves from sexual immorality. Do you want to know why? Because it is idols and sexual immorality that 100% of the time will drag you away from Jesus. It's true. They will 100% of the time drag you away from Jesus. And what does Jesus desire from us? What does Jesus promise us here in this text? What does Jesus tell us is a fact? that we are from God. And that as being from God, we will not live a life of habitual sin, that there are many possibilities, and that if we can stay away from idols, stay away from sexual immorality, we can experience the benefit, the blessing that comes from the possibilities of this information. So my challenge to you this morning in closing if you're not saved, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have been, for I don't know, you've been consumed with some idol. 
There's something in your life that just consumes you. Listen, Jesus will be satisfactory. Jesus will be sufficient. Jesus will be glorious in your life if you just embrace him by faith. If you just trust in his sufficiency and his goodness, he will be all that you need. And the things that the world offers you as a substitute to being satisfied with Jesus Christ, number one, they never satisfy, do they? What do you always need when it comes to idols? You always need more, don't you? You know it's an idol of the world because you need more. Do you know how much more of Jesus I need? I don't need any more. I got him. Maybe a better way of saying is that he's got me. That's the hope that we have. The devil has thrown so many things at us, folks, thrown so many things at us to draw us away from seeing Christ as being supreme. And God help us again to see Christ as supreme. Let's pray. Father, help us today. Help us to know the information that your word presents, the truths that are there, the, the um, non-negotiables, the things that it doesn't matter whether we embrace them or not. It, what really matters is, is their truth. They are the truth. Help us to know those things. And then, Lord God, help us to embrace them as truth, to know that by embracing them as truth, by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done by faith, we then experience the benefits and the blessings that come from the factual information. And then I pray as well, Lord, that we would take it seriously, that we would know what is there to draw us away from Christ and that we would flee from it. Maybe, Lord, not even just for our own benefit, but maybe for the benefit of another brother or another um, possible brother that we would avoid those things that would drive us far from you. And we would embrace those things that would drive us close. Pray that you would just bless us this, this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. And um, use, Lord God, this book to change our lives for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.